Night Triathlon Show, episode 61. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and today's episode is all about the performance and physiology of cycling and running in Olympic distance triathlon, although I will say from the go that there is a lot of things that you can take away for other distances as well. The reason that we call this interview and this episode Olympic distance triathlon is that that is what my guest's PhD thesis was called and what she investigated in her PhD thesis. This guest is Naroa Echebaria. She is an assistant professor at the University of Canberra and she has been working with British triathlon, the Australian Institute of Sports and has had has been to the Beijing Olympics. She has been involved in a lot of ways in the application of sports science. So working with elite athletes, especially in British triathlon, Tim Dunn, Vicky Holland, uh, the Brownleys a little bit, and so on. So this is a great interview. You'll get to hear both the science and the applications of running and cycling in triathlon, how to train, how to race, how cycling affects your running off the bike, and so on. So let's dive right into the interview with Naroa Echebaria. Okay, it's my great pleasure today to welcome Naroa Echebaria to that triathlon show. Welcome, Naroa. How are you today? Hi, thank you. Yeah, really good. Thanks. And uh, you're all the way in Australia, in Canberra. You're working at the university there. What's your role exactly? Yeah, so um, at the moment I'm working at the University of Canberra uh, here in Australia uh, and um, I'm in a lecturer position, uh, an assistant professor position where I get to teach um, undergraduate students, supervise uh, research students and also do some applied research uh, together uh, with uh, different um, organizations. And the, the topic and the reason that I contacted you in the first place was that I found some of your research related to your PhD thesis that uh, is titled Physiology and Performance of Cycling and Running During Olympic Distance Triathlon. I was looking for uh, the science available on uh, like brick runs or running off the bike, uh, simply put, and uh, you literally wrote the PhD on that topic. So I think that you're the perfect guest to talk about that. But in addition to that, can you just give us a very brief uh, overview of your background, of the different roles that you've had and what you've done so far in your career? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm from the Basque country uh, in Europe, and um, I did my undergraduate degree um, in Gasteiz. Uh, but part of that was to do an exchange year uh, in the UK, in, uh, in Cheltenham. So that's where I um, got into physiology, sports physiology. Um, so I decided once I finished my undergraduate degree to go back to the UK to do my master's in Loughborough, 
where I did my uh, master's uh, and started to work with British Triathlon at the time. Um, so, yeah, I really got into the sport. I've always been a bit of an endurance um, sports fan myself, uh, being a bit of a runner. Um, and, uh, yeah, I kind of started to uh, implement the concepts that I was learning through my master's uh, with real athletes, um, uh, with the British with, with the British athletes at the time. And, um, yeah, everything snowballed from there. Then I came to Australia for a year to work at the AIS. Um, then I went back to uh, Loughborough to work for the English Institute of Sport for a couple of years before I came back again to Canberra. And, um, you know, since I've started to do some work um, in um, applied research, obviously, uh, continuing on from my PhD work, uh, but also expanding it to different sports um, and lecturing at um, at the university now for about eight eight years or so. Perfect. And uh, can you are you allowed to name drop a few of the elite athletes that you've been working with? If there are some names that the listeners would be familiar with, yeah, sure. Um, I hope they don't mind. <laughs> uh, I'm sure they don't. So um, yeah, I, no, I got. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, look, I, I had a great pleasure to work with a lot of athletes, um, some that were more senior and some that were developing at the time. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so we had uh, Tim Don, um, uh, you know, Stuart Hay there. Um, we had... Um, you know different uh, female athletes that are doing um, are doing really well now um, as well uh, with uh, you know Vicky Holland uh, was was in the development um, kind of uh, program there um, and uh, yeah a few of the others so will Clark um, we did a little bit with uh, the Brownleys as well um, so mainly on uh, training camps because they weren't actually based in Lafra at the time um, but yeah we had uh, some uh, work that we did with um, with um, Alistair and John Lee uh, in the lead up to to the Beijing Olympics um, as well. So yeah, some some exciting um, exciting athletes and exciting times um, had. Definitely. And uh, let's get into the main topic, which is uh, physiology and performance of cycling and running now. And uh, we have you have a few different studies that were part of your PhD that will uh, be the foundation for this discussion. And so it will be kind of some sci- a lot of science, but let's also, since you have that uh, application background, try to make every point uh, as applicable as possible and give some tips and advice for the listeners for if if there are such uh, applications that uh, they can derive from these things that we'll talk about. So I was thinking that maybe the first study that we should discuss here briefly is uh, physiological assessment of isolated running does not directly replicate running capacity after triathlon specific cycling so that basically talks about how pure running is uh, different from uh, running off the bike so can you talk about what you did there and what you found yeah definitely so as part of my role as the um, physiologist uh, working with triathlon at the time um you know, uh, was to answer questions such as, you know, how the run is affected by the previous two disciplines, which was the swimming, um, which still is, I guess, the swimming and the, and the cycling, um, sections. 
Um, our questions were mainly related to Olympic distance triathlon, um, I guess. So I wanted to kind of contextualize um, my my uh, my comments in that uh, we weren't looking um, at sprint or kind of Ironman distance uh, triathlons, but it was mainly Olympic distance. However, most of the concepts are applicable to to some extent um, to the shorter or longer disciplines of triathlon as well. Um, and I guess, as you say, you know, I was in a great position um, to be able to see what the athlete needed um, at the time uh, and, uh, you know, what were the challenges that uh, the athletes were going through uh, when they were training and trying to figure out the best way to help them in, um, in, in, in that process of, you know, becoming better and improving their performance. And one of the questions there was that uh, obviously by the time they get to the running stage, um, their body has uh, obviously gone through quite quite a fair bit through the swim and the cycle. Um, and we wanted to see whether their physiological status for the run at the time in, in a race or competition scenario was reflective of the running assessment that we would do in the lab in isolation. So usually the uh, physiological assessment of a triathlete would be done in different stages and on different days uh, for the run and for the cycle um, and, and for the swim as well. But obviously the, the information, I guess, that we were getting um, from doing those assessment items uh, in the lab were perhaps not the most accurate because they were done fresh um, or without any preceding uh, cycle exercise. So we compared uh, their running ability uh, with and without any cycling uh, beforehand, and we basically came up with um, with uh, information and, and I guess with with data to say that you know the the capability of of their athletes of these athletes um, when it came to the running stage uh, in competition was not the same as when we were doing the lab lab work um, in 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 the lab when they were fresh uh, so yeah we basically considered the fatigue they accumulated through the cycle and how this was going to affect especially the first um the first few minutes of of the run um yeah interesting so uh, can you elaborate a little bit about that does that mean that for example athletes that perform better in the fresh state uh, on a separate day in the lab before the run test did not necessarily perform as well as other athletes when they had to do a run test off the bike in a fatigued state yeah, that's definitely true in some cases. Um, it's also true that some athletes are more affected by their previous cycling than others are. So it is quite an individualized, um, individualized respond, response even. Um, the other concept there is also about the fitness um, that uh, an athlete would carry out on the cycle section uh, compared to the running fitness. So, for example, if we have an athlete who is a very efficient cyclist, um, then they are very good at not... Um, not accumulating too much fatigue during the cycle leg so that their running 
of, of the bike is very similar to their running when they are fresh. Um, some other athletes find the, ch- the cycling um, uh, component of, of the race quite uh, demanding, uh, probably because their fitness during the cycle section is not uh, quite as good as on the run. And they basically suffer the consequences of that cycle section on the early stages of the subsequent run. So I guess it's a bit of an art, um, as it is always when you are coaching um, and getting you know the best performance out of uh, an elite athlete. Uh, to to balance out, you know, how you prepare them for the cycle section, but then how do you also, uh, you know, reduce or, or or minimize the fatigue that will come from that into the next um, into the next section. Um, at the same time, uh, we were going through different, um, you know, uh, success uh, experiences, successful experiences in races, and one of the things that um, athletes should think about is that the harder the cycle section it is uh, for them, uh, the harder it is for everyone else too. Therefore, um, you know, they can take advantage of uh, making the cycle section quite hard and, um, and um, you know, fatiguing their, com- their opponents uh, for, the, for the running section. So, and, and I know that um, as a matter of fact, that a lot of um, really good round triathletes have um, used that strategy in order to maximize their chances to win um overall so yeah it's a it's a really really interesting interesting topic i think the brown list would be a perfect example of doing the bike as hard as possible and then uh then really reaping the benefits on the run because they are so great at running tired on tired legs of the bike one thing that i want to uh, piggyback on is uh, when you mentioned that your fitness level on the bike affects your running off the bike in this study, you basically you had all the participants bike at 65% of maximal aerobic power. So it was all the same relative fitness. But does that mean that, for example, if an athlete has a maximal aerobic power of 400 watts, then even if uh, then they would perform better, may- maybe on average, compared to an athlete that has a maximal aerobic power of 350 watts, even though it's 65% that that cycle test is performed that's for both athletes. Yeah, well, look, it's um, that's a really good point and really good question. Um, so yeah, we did um, uh, we did make the cycling intensity relevant and and uh, individualized to their capacity. So that's why everyone cycled at 60. 65% of their maximal aerobic power. Um, so that's uh, the same relative intensity, theoretically, for everyone. However, you have to think about how some athletes have a really great um, capacity to produce high power outputs for short periods of time. And those athletes would um, have a tendency of achieving a high maximum aerobic power. Uh, which means that their 65% of that uh, maximal aerobic power might be a bit higher than uh, for someone who hasn't got the capacity to produce such a high uh, power output maximally, but they are actually quite efficient at sustaining a high percentage of that for a long period of time. So that's where it all gets a bit exciting because um, you've got athletes that have a high um, you know, um, cycling 
um, efficiency um, with uh, with not such a great maximum uh, capacity versus some of the athletes that um, you know struggle to to sustain a high percentage of of their maximum capacity, uh, but they are actually uh, really well placed for um, you know high intensity bursts during the race uh, and for example you know uh, trying to get into a breakaway and and so on. So um, I guess you know is the comparison between the the the, the diesel and the and the high performing um, cars that have a high capacity to um, get into the higher intensity efforts um, and uh, those athletes that uh, prefer to sustain a, a similar intensity throughout the whole cycle section. So um, it is a bit of a game, um, a strategic game as to how you play your strengths um, your strengths in 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 the cycle leg and uh, how you can make the most of the weaknesses of your opponents i guess at the same time got it and are there any other applications or action steps uh, that came from this study that uh, we should talk about <laughs> Look, um, I think I think one of the main things that came out of this is that um, you know you, I guess, and, and everyone is aware of this that the planning of uh, of uh, of uh, you know triathlete and the and the training intervention that goes to make the most of what um, what they have is to maximize their strengths, uh, but also work hard on their weaknesses so that they can actually um, you know maximize their their capacity. Um, I think. I think it's really important to think of, um, you know, how the the tactics um, of of the race uh, play an important role as well, and knowing um, how to make the most of of the race situation so that it would benefit uh, your strengths and you can get the you know the better outcome. I guess um, the other thing that um, I would like to talk about briefly is the um, the the cycling ability of of um, some triathletes that might actually not be natural cyclists per se, um, and um, they would benefit or, or they can actually benefit a lot from improving their um, technical skills so that they can actually, um, you know, reduce the physical effort they need to put in uh, during the cycle leg because they uh, they have greater uh, technical skills. So we we at the time a few years back now, and things things are evolving all the time with triathlon at the moment. But we saw that um, in the females, especially, there was a great uh, great chance to improve, um, you know, improve their ability to to get at the front of the pack um, at the end of the cycle just by being able to sit behind someone and being able to save um, a lot of energy because they were good at, um, you know, uh, descending. Uh, they didn't have to, dis- um, you know, accelerate and stop and accelerate as much because their technical skills were better. Therefore, they had fresher legs by the end of the cycle leg. Uh, compared to someone else that, uh, you know, uh, was at the same time, at the same place, um, but their power output, for example, was much higher, significantly higher during the during the effort. So I guess uh, what I'm trying to say is, uh, you know, in summary, that you can, um, you know, get to the same point in the cycle leg. Uh, by um, by having to push, you know, twenty to forty watts less on average, um, if you uh, maximize on your technical skills. So that's another another thing to consider as well. 
Yeah, that's great. And uh, a recent uh, example of that is Flora Duffy in this World, World Triathlon Series, who's head and shoulders above the rest, both in terms of strength and power on the bike, but also technical skills and how much less energy she has to produce coming out of corners and so on. It's just jaw-dropping how great her bike handling is and how uh, she can uh, really benefit from that compared to the opponent's. And one point that I want to make as well for many listeners that don't do draft legal racing, this can be useful in uh, in non-draft racing as well and long course triathlon. And the thing that I'm thinking about is working on your swim and exiting the swim further up the field. Because if you're a back-of-the-pack swimmer or mid-pack swimmer, but you're a strong biker and you need to do overtake people time and time again, your burning matches and your cycling power output is uh, much more variable than if you are at a much clearer space further up the field after the first transition after the swim. So even though you may think that the swim is just a short portion of an Ironman, so you don't need to work on it, you can save a lot of energy and uh, through that be much more fresher, much more fresh for the run if your swimming is up to scratch. So the next study that uh, I want to talk about is cycling attributes that enhance running performance after the cycle section in triathlon. And that is relatively related to what I just said about the variable and versus constant power outputs. So uh, what did you do for this study and what did you find? Yeah, so um, one one of the things that we were um, thinking and pondering about at the time was that um, the as the triathlon venues, uh, triathlon race venues changed to uh, the kind of CVDs uh, of big cities, uh, the actual uh, demands of the sport were changing as well. So um, traditionally, triathlons were um, held on the outskirts of, of, of bigger cities where the cycling um, section especially was performed on roads that usually were, uh, you know, an up and back sort of um, uh, cycle section where the roads were quite flat, um, not many corners or turns. Um, therefore, the technical skills weren't um, so, so high uh, but then the intensity of exercise was actually much more steady state. Um, but the, I guess the transition of, of, of the sport as it's become more popular and, um, you know, there's been, um, you know, sponsoring and, 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 and so on happening. Um, the, the cities, the, the cities that are hosting those, those events, um, have a much more technical course on the bike. So the demands, the physical and physiological demands of the cycle were changing, uh, quite dramatically. So we wanted to see what the actual um, demands were by making the athletes um, cycle through a uh, protocol that was uh, quite a challenging one. Um, I still get people um, come in and, and tell me that uh, the, the, these studies were the hardest they've ever done and they've, they've gone through a few of them. Um, and what we did was basically um, in make them cycle through short and, and very high-intensity efforts of different durations um, throughout the one hour um, that uh, we made them cycle for before they went on to doing the run. So um, I guess anyone who's done a cycling effort, uh, you know, in a steady state manner will say that when you actually go hills or when you are going up and down in that intensity, uh, usually that um, interval training 
style um, um, you know exercise is much de- much more demanding and, and 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 it requires different types of energy systems as we know different um, you know types of muscle fibers and so on so we basically compared um, the same uh, mean power output that the the athletes achieved uh, which was 65 uh, percent of maximal aerobic power but we looked at the physiological responses when they were cycling at a steady state in intensity at 65%. And when the same mean power output was achieved for the one hour, but the way that mean power output was achieved was by going um, way above and beyond the 65% of of maximal aerobic power, um, alternating with sections where, um, you know, the the intensity was much lower than 65% as well. And what did you find? Yeah, I was kind of waiting for that. Um, yeah, well, what we found was that um, the physiological demands of a, of a stochastic type of exercise is much higher than when you are exercising steady state. Um, again, some athletes are uh, more genetically prone to being good at um, you know variable intensity uh, exercise than others are, but there is a lot of... Um, I guess, preparation that uh, can go into making someone go uh, go pretty good at variable intensity exercise. So that's, um, I guess, one of the aims was to inform coaches as to what the, the physiological demands of racing were so that they could adjust their training intervention and, and strategies to accommodate uh, the, the demands of the race. Because at the end of the day, um, you know, athletes are prepared to perform at those races and if we don't know what's actually happening and what are the demands of those specific uh, races we cannot prepare an athlete to to be best at at that 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 type of race so um yeah we just profiled the 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 courses we knew that the demands were going to be variable um and uh, we got coaches informed so that they could um, uh, you know maximize the training uh process to make the athletes um you know good at coping with those uh variable variable courses yeah and to give some context of this how this uh, variable power output and on variable variable courses affect your running the quantitative results that you found were that on a 9.3 kilometer run time trial off the bike it was 42 seconds slower on average after that variable power output which had had the same mean power output compared with the steady state cycling so 42 seconds for a 9.3 kilometer run that's that's a lot considering that the mean power is the same so for sure something that uh, the listeners should take away if you are racing draft non-draft racing where you have the opportunity to control your pacing and not be so bound to tactics that that you would be in in draft legal racing then learning how to pace yourself properly and trying to cycle at as much of a steady state as you can is definitely a good takeaway to get from from this and do you have any anything else to add yeah definitely well that's a bit of a conservative approach which is um what most people kind of take out of this study um i guess my take on it is that if most people are gonna try and do that (laughs) uh, by not changing their pace so much uh whoever that trains 
to be able to cope with that and whoever can whoever that can um, drive you know the change of pace um, in the cycle race can actually fatigue everyone else and uh, get um, you know the best out of the the overall performance so I guess there are a couple of uh, different ways to look at it uh, my take on it is that the more you can prepare for that sort of um, exercise stochastic exercise you can actually um, you know get get better get a better result than someone who hasn't got the capacity to do that um, and they choose to be a bit more conservative and um, and, and and cycle at a steady state uh, result as we know um, you know the physiological adaptations that you get from training, uh, especially in uh, well any any sport, but in endurance, it's definitely true. Is a result of the type of training you do and the type of stress that you place in your um, in your body. So, um, instead of uh, doing steady state type of um, training sessions, what I would do is try to stress that um, anaerobic uh, lactic system, uh, which is the maximum aerobic power um, that uh, you can produce for a short period of time and uh, and teach your body to recover from it so um, you know doing short recovery um, sessions between the efforts so that your body basically gets better and better uh, prepared to 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 cope with those demands so um, yeah let's let's be adventurous uh, rather than conservative Give us an example of a workout with uh, uh, stressing that system and with those short recoveries. Yeah, sure. So, um, as um, I guess you know, as we all know, um, you know, the training sessions that uh, you undertake uh, during a week and during the months are trying to stress the different components of your um, of your energy system, so that you are actually um, improving on all all different um, different areas. Um, but one of the things that we know, for example is that if you choose to improve your anaerobic capacity, which is basically the capacity to produce a lot of energy uh, during a short period of time, um, your the consequences of that are um, obviously lactate accumulation and, and hydrogen ion accumulation, which causes acidosis and therefore um, makes you uh, want to stop or have to stop. Um, you can actually improve that anaerobic capacity and the way you deal with that uh, drop in pH by actually um, doing exactly that, those sort of efforts. Uh, so if you perform... Um, those sort of efforts with a short recovery period, your body becomes more effective and efficient at um, recovering better from those sort of efforts. So I guess whatever hurts the most in training is what you should be working on um, in order to get better at it. So I don't know, something like um, doing, you know, 400 um, efforts with, um, you know, only a few seconds uh, recovery uh, would be a good way of, um, you know, stressing that anaerobic system and improving um, at, you know, going hard and high, um, but also recovering, recovering from it. So um, yeah, it's, 
is that for is that 400 meters on the on the track you mean it, or are it could be no I, I was talking more about running um and it could be on the road as well as um, as well as the track. Um, but yeah, I guess different times uh, during the season have different aims um, and goals that the coach is trying to achieve. Um, and you know, one of the goals could be, for example, to increase your aerobic metabolism. And one way of doing that is by um, you know, uh, going for an easy jog early in the morning when you are, um, you know, when you've been fasting for eight hours and um, you are trying to teach the body to mobilize your fats. Um, but then obviously we know that in order to perform high intensity quality sessions, we need to stock up on our glycogen and, and carbohydrate loading is going to be an important factor, which means that for almost for every session that you do, you can manipulate whether you are actually um, targeting fat mobilization versus quality efforts and, um, and anaerobic uh, capacity and so on. So it's all a bit of an art, as we know, and, and the coaches here have a, a hard um, a hard job and task of, you know, bringing it all together because obviously you are playing with, um, you know, multiple sessions a day uh, where you are trying to time your nutritional intake to maximize the outcomes of the and, and, and adaptations from all these different training sessions. So, um, yeah, hats off to all the, all the triathlon coaches that do a brilliant job in trying to you know bring everything uh, everything together yeah and uh, i do agree with you about that aggressive approach definitely when you're on the, the elite and or just front pack age groupers definitely trying to to take control of the race and uh, even non-draft racing these days 70.3s at the elite and this very much a variable power output affair so so definitely agree with you on that front and my point about steady state trying to keep an even pace is maybe more more directed towards the the average age grouper than those uh, front packers and and the elite athletes just to clarify that finally keeping the discussion on uh, training and uh, interval training specifically your study called high intensity cycle interval training improves cycling and running performance in triathletes uh, that compared different kinds of intervals, so some longer ones. There was six times eight, uh, six to eight times five minute efforts, sorry, versus short high intensity uh, efforts. There were nine to eleven times ten, twenty, and forty second efforts. Uh, so uh, you investigated or compared those two training protocols. What did you find in that? Study? Yeah. So obviously, um, as um, as the sequence of the studies came along, um, we first, um, you know, characterized the demands of triathlon, verify uh, them in the lab, and I guess the last um, kind of. Um, you know, stage of it was to be able to do something about improving the, the capacity of these athletes to perform well under those conditions. And um, what we did was compare longer, more traditional um, intervals that were five minute uh, long intervals with um, some of the shorter and sharper efforts that went anything and anywhere between 10 seconds and 30 second efforts um, at higher intensities obviously than uh, those sustained for five minutes which made it quite interesting to see how you know athletes were going through the different interventions um, both interventions uh, proved to be beneficial 
beneficial in order to prove um, to improve performance. Um, and I guess it depends. It really depends on a lot of people ask me, you know, which one would you go for? Um, and obviously, um, we found that the, the, the longer efforts, um, got a better, um, outcome for, for the running section to improve the, the running section. Um, and, um, and the shorter ones, um, sort of helped with the cycling as well as, um, you know, the running performance. Um, I guess the answer that I, I sort of give is that it really depends on the person that you're working with. Um, one of the, one of the, you know, beauties of, of doing research, I guess, is that it's a generalized outcome that you get out of it. So it's a group, um, situation where you've got a group of athletes that you bring together, you make them do a certain type of exercise. And as a group, they give you an indication for the, um, outcome you might get out of those interventions. Um, I guess that difficulty when you are talking uh, to an athlete one-on-one is that you don't have a group of people anymore. You have to um, take the concepts that the research has developed and apply it to the person that you have in front of you. And I think that's that's the, I guess, the difficulty sometimes of translating research outcomes into specific um, athlete training interventions. Um, and I guess when I, when I try to do that, I try to translate what I found in my studies and trying to, um, you know, advise an athlete, a specific athlete as to what they should do is to look at, um, you know, their abilities at the time. So to measure what they can do and then manipulate the training intervention to increase, um, increase the capacity that they are lacking on. So for example, if I have someone that is a diesel type athlete who goes quite well under steady state conditions, I would probably uh, approach the training intervention by using short and sharp, um, you know, 10 to 30 second efforts, because that's what they are not going to be so good at. And that's basically the 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 area where we have most um you know most um uh, capacity to improve upon if you take someone that is really good at uh, doing you know short and high intensity efforts um more more of that sort of work uh, can only get them a little bit better whilst if you did something that they are not that good at the 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 options and the room for improvement is greater so i guess it's always a good idea to make someone um you know train a different way that they haven't actually trained before uh because the way the the body adapts um they they are always going to be better at uh doing something that they are used to uh and when you bring a different element a new element to that training process you actually see benefits um, um, straight away so if someone is good at steady state type of efforts make them do short and sharp high intensity efforts if someone is very good at that top end but they struggle to sustain a high percentage of that maximal capacity then i would make them do the five minute long efforts if that makes sense yeah, it does. And how can somebody find out whether they're a diesel or uh, short and sharp, an uh, intensity uh, prone athlete if they don't have uh, access to a lab? 
What's your recommendation? Yeah, that's a really good question, actually. Um, look, I would probably make them go out and uh, put themselves into a race situation and see if they have the capacity to change pace um, comfortably or not. That would be a good test. Um, if you uh, train in a group, uh, you will probably know the one that is very good at um, leaving everyone behind with a few Ks to go or a few meters to go and everyone else kind of is left that you know they're hanging um they don't have a change of pace um then you would be a diesel type um but those of those people that are you know uh, very good at maximal um at the maximal capacity they might struggle to maybe keep up um with uh, those that um sustain a high intensity for for a longer period of time so yeah i think it's um it's actually a good situation where you should maybe compare yourself with with others to see how you would probably rate <laughs> um you know, with with the others um, in those sort of um, uh, abilities, I guess. And and to be honest, most of athletes know. Most people that do triathlon know what they struggle with. Um, I guess it's a different matter when they decide to do something about it or not. So um, I think it's not so much about identifying what you are lacking. Um, most people are pretty good at that. It's actually making a conscious decision about doing something about it. And and I guess the good news is that you can improve in any area that um, you are not um, that great at. It's just a matter of working on it. Um, everyone tends to train what they like or what they are good at. Um, it's really hard to sometimes make yourself do um, training sessions that are not, very, are not you know, uh, of your liking or they are actually hurting. Uh, they do hurt a lot. Those are the sessions that are actually good for you, I guess. And I'm going to make an educated guess here for the benefit of, for example, my fellow Finns where winter is coming and there are no more races and not too many group rides left. If you have no idea what you are, then you are probably more likely than not a diesel type athlete because that I think is the majority of age group athletes. So uh, that I think that would be a, a good uh, starting point and then you can find out in training. I just want to reiterate the results that you got from this study that we're talking about here. And that was both groups, both the shorter and longer intervals improved by about 10% in uh, cycling sprint output power so that's uh that's a great improvement 20 second sprints only so uh, there's a rather large large variance of course but then there was also an improvement small to moderate uh, in heart rate blood lactate and perceived exertion in a one hour triathlon specific cycling but then in the five kilometer run test only the long interval group had a substantial decrease in runtime and that was 64 seconds on average so that's uh that's a big improvement and uh, anything else that we should add uh, in terms of uh, applications and actions? Um, yeah, look, um, I think um, one of the one of the main concepts that I learned through um, going going through this um, through this process is that um, you know it's really important to know um, exactly what races you are preparing for um, and it's often quite hard to be able to prepare for different distances uh, distances uh, within a se- um, within a season so I think it's important uh, that people have a clear goal um, I think it's also important 
to be able to have downtime in training as well as uh, as well as you know harder uh, periods of, of 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 training where you are actually overloading. Uh, one thing that I um, I find challenging sometimes with endurance type of athletes is that they don't like taking days off or they don't like taking a week of uh, of a lower um, you know volume and intensity of of training. Um, but I guess the way I look at it is that to be able to pick and get a great result, you also need to be able to come down and rest. So you can either choose to you know perform at maybe 90% of your ability throughout the whole season consistently, or you can choose to target specific races where you're going to go 100% of your capacity. But that means that, um, you know, in, in other races at different times, you will be performing at 70% or, or maybe 80%. So, um, yeah, I guess it's, um, it's a matter of, uh, you know, prioritizing, um, making sure that you periodize and you have a periodization plan for your training for the year where there are highs and lows in 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 both volume and intensity of of your training very good points very good points and uh, i was just thinking when you talked about rest there that one of the best things that my coach has uh, implemented in my program since we started working together is one complete rest day every single week that's uh, one of the best changes one of the best things that's ever happened to to my endurance training throughout all the years so uh, and i think that's something that uh, many listeners would benefit from because as you say many athletes are afraid of yeah. taking rest days okay we have a, a few uh, just quickly, um, say, just to to make um, everyone think about how the body works, um, you actually don't adapt from the exercise that you do until you allow the body to rest and adapt from it. So, not the person that trains um, the most is gonna adapt from it the most. And I guess it's um, it's a bit of a trick because a lot of people think that the more exercise you do, the the better outcomes you're gonna get. And it's actually when you resting that the body adapts you can actually do an awful lot of um, work that may not translate into adaptations just because you are not resting enough so you are actually doing a lot of hard work for very little gain Um, it's better to be smart about it and maximize the um, adaptations for the work that you actually do so just something to think about uh, when you are thinking about the ratio between rest and, and exercise Definitely. And uh, I only have uh, rapid fire questions left for you, three of them, and uh, let's keep them to 20 seconds or Ooh, less. That will be hard. Session. So, starting with, <laughs> yeah, it's going to be hard. I'm going to challenge you. The clock is ticking. What's your favorite book, blog, or resource related to endurance sports or high-performance sport or your field of experience? Um, yeah, well, I look at um, different magazines. I um, keep an eye on, um, you know, the the conversations that I have with colleagues. Um, you know, the ITU website, I follow um, a lot. Um, and yeah, anything that comes kind of into my inbox from the network that I've um, developed over the years, really. You need to subscribe to this podcast and, and add that to the list, I think. Who's somebody in triathlon or your field of expertise that you look up to? 
Um, look, there is a lot of people that um, I look up to. I'm really lucky to have a lot of mentors um, in um, in academia, but also within the applied sports science, um, you know, area. Um, and being here in Canberra, um, you know, I get to um, you know do research with uh, some of the top uh, researchers with um, you know with the sports science. So yeah, I'm very lucky to have a lot of people influence influence me. Give us one name. Uh, <laughs> I can't give you one single name. Uh, <laughs> okay. For example, I've got Ben Bright, who was a coach that I really learned a lot from. Uh, Mark Pierce, um, a scientist that I learned a lot from um, in triathlon. And then I've got a lot of people here like Dave Martin, David Pine, um, that are at the AIS that I've learned a lot, um, a lot of, yeah. Okay, perfect. And finally, what research topic, your own or somebody else's, are you most excited about right now? Um, I'm doing a lot about gut health now, gut permeability in athletes. Um, I'm doing some work with nutrition with um, Louise Burke. Uh, that is quite um, exciting. And some work uh, in still in triathlon that I'm finalizing and, and new projects coming up. So, um, yeah, a lot of exciting stuff happening. Perfect. Uh, this has been Naroa Echevarria, and uh, we have been uh, talking about running and cycling performance, and it's been a re real pleasure getting to pick your brains on that topic. So thank you for coming on the show, Naroa. No, thanks very much for, um, for having me. I've really enjoyed um, talking to you um, and uh, seeing how passionate you and, and you know, all the followers are about a great sport that is triathlon. So um, keeps us all uh, challenged uh, and entertained, uh, which, is, which is great. All right, I hope that you enjoyed that interview. You can find the show notes on thattriathlonshow.com and you can, as always, contact me and send me questions and feedback on michael at scientifictriathlon.com and that's Michael with a K or tweet me on Twitter where my handle is at SciTriat. In the next episode, we will have Jacques Devore on the show and he is... Uh, a strength training coach and cycling coach, but his primary focus these days is strength training for cyclists. And he has been working with some very top end cyclists and countless age groupers. And he has developed his own strength training concept that has turned out to be extremely successful for cycling. It's called Maximum Overload for cycling and he has a book with the same name that has uh, relatively recently been released and we talk about the maximum overload strength training program and how it can benefit your cycling and your triathlon on the next episode so stay tuned for that also i want to mention that uh, for some time still i have uh, my free olympic distance uh, intermediate to advanced training plan with 7 to 11 hours of training per week available on uh, training peaks that you can get it for free using the uh, the discount code free plan 17 all in one word all caps i'll have the information on the show notes you can also go to scientifictriathlon.com forward slash free plan and you will find all the details there so scientifictriathlon.com forward slash free plan be sure to check it out and use it and let me know what you think thank you as always for listening keep training smart and keep loving triathlon <laughs>